From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, Ron DeSantis is campaigning for president promising to stop woke history. Stop teaching about slavery and its legacy of institutional racism. Adam Hochschild found the history curriculum DeSantis wants. He'll report later in the show. But first, the roots of the January 6th insurrection go back decades before Trump entered politics, back to the bombing of the Oklahoma City Federal Building in 1995. Jeffrey Tubin will explain in a minute. It's been 28 years since the bombing of the Oklahoma City Federal Building in 1995, carried out by Timothy McVeigh, killed 168 people, including 15 children in the daycare center. There's a direct link between that event and the insurrection of January 6th. That's what Jeffrey Tubin argues in his new book, Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism. Tubin is the author of many bestsellers, including The Nine, Inside the Secret World of the Supreme Court. We talked about it here. We reached him today in Manhattan. Jeff Tubin, welcome back. Hi, John. Well, let me start by listing the ways the Oklahoma City bombing was different from the January 6th events. It was not an attempt to overturn a presidential election. It was not an attack on the Capitol building or on Congress was not instigated by a defeated presidential candidate, and it was not a mass event involving thousands of people fighting the police for hours. Nevertheless, you do make a convincing case about the direct links that make January 6th, in your words, the culmination of the principles and tactics of Timothy McVeigh. Tell us about those links. Well, the, the links are really ideological. McVeigh was motivated above all by an obsession with gun rights and what he called the Second Amendment, his understanding of the Second Amendment. And if you look at right-wing violence in subsequent years, including January 6, 2021, the fixation on gun rights is, is a constant among them all, as is the belief that violence is an appropriate way to achieve political change. And the third thing that, that is a link, and one that was, to be honest, quite you know somewhat of a surprise to me, was a persistent desire to identify with the American Revolution, that uh, McVeigh uh, had memorized the Declaration of Independence, not just the famous part at the beginning, but the parts where uh, Thomas Jefferson outlined his grievances against the King of England. And if you look at um, January 6th in particular, you see this continuing attempted association between rebellion against an evil federal government with rebellion against an evil kingdom from across the Atlantic. So those are just three of the examples of, of the ideological links between McVeigh and the January 6 people. A key part of your book, Homegrown, is your revelations about the trial and what was left out or what was misleading in the trial, it portrayed Timothy McVeigh as a lone wolf. And you show that, in fact, he wanted to start a movement which today seems extremely important. Uh, why was that left out of the prosecution case and who made that decision? Well, uh, one of the protagonists of Homegrown is, uh, is Merrick Garland. 
um, who at the time was a senior but not very top Justice Department official, who was assigned supervision of the Oklahoma City bombing case. Uh, one of the odd, interesting facts that I learned is that he actually wanted to try the case, but uh, his boss wouldn't let him because she wanted him to take charge of the Unabomber investigation, uh, which was floundering at the time, before, well before the arrest of Ted Kaczynski. But um, Garland had a uh, particular aversion to what was going on in the O.J. Simpson criminal case, which was unfolding at precisely the time of the Oklahoma City bombing. And he wanted the, the McVeigh prosecution to be very different. He wanted it to be very much lower profile, very much focused on the evidence. He didn't want any celebrity worship involved. And uh, he was the person who uh, really urged the prosecutors to keep the case very narrowly tailored to the precise evidence against McVeigh and Terry Nichols, uh, his co-defendant. I don't really fall Garland for that. You know, that given what his obligation was at that time, uh, I think uh, that that was an understandable decision. However, I do think that has informed his extreme reluctance as attorney general to talk about the larger threats involved. So Merrick Garland wanted to keep this as narrow as possible, but there was another person who wanted to look at the big picture. And that was Bill Clinton. I was fortunate to interview President Clinton for this book. And before I uh, interviewed him, I had, I, I had interviewed people who had seen him uh, in the Oval Office on April 19th, 1995, you know, in private before, before he made any public statement about, about the bombing. And, and one thing that really shocked me was that at a time when a lot of people, including many people in public, were... Uh, assuming that the bombing was the product of Islamic radicalism, Clinton was saying privately, no, 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 I know who did this. It was the militias. And so when I interviewed Clinton, I said, how did you know? And he said, I knew them from Arkansas. And he wow. went through chapter and verse about his 12 years as governor and how many times he dealt with violent right-wing extremism from uh, Arkansas-based extremists. And it was completely fascinating to me. And I then uh, checked it, checked out everything he said, and it did, it did check out as true. And, and uh, that to me was, you know, just an extremely important signal that Timothy McVeigh did not come out of nowhere. He was part of a movement. And uh, that movement predated the Oklahoma City bombing, and it has postdated the Oklahoma City bombing. Who was Timothy McVeigh before the Oklahoma City bombings? You show he had a kind of unhappy childhood, but lots of people have had unhappy childhoods. Well, that's the thing about McVeigh is that, you know, you can point to various aspects of his background. Uh, he came from outside Buffalo, where his, um, his father worked for 30 years at a GM plant. His grandfather worked at the same GM plant for 30 years, but that plant was shrinking almost to insignificance. When, when McVeigh was growing up. So he grew up with you know, economic uncertainty and dislocation. Uh, he joined the army. He was a very good soldier, but he washed out of um, Green Beret School where he, he wanted to you know, make it to special forces and he didn't. His parents had a rancorous divorce. Um, he was not successful with women. All of these factors were, I think, part of what 
uh, led him to be the terrorist he turned out to be. But they are also true of millions of other people. He was not uh, unique in any of these in any of these ways. But some switch flipped and he turned into someone whose grievances, while fairly ordinary, turned violent, which was not ordinary. And you say that his ideology should not be described as anti-government. Why is that? Well, uh, the, the, the Rosetta Stone of his ideology was a novel called The Turner Diaries. And he, start, he read it as a teenager and read it over and over again. And what that novel portrays is uh, a, a federal government that has been taken over by blacks and Jews. And the first thing they do is pass a law called the Cohen Act which mandates the removal of all private firearms from, private, from, from individual hands. And as a result, Earl Turner, the uh, protagonist and narrator of the book, sets off a truck bomb by the FBI building in Washington, which kills hundreds of people. McVeigh very intentionally used the, the Turner Diaries as uh, a model for, for the Oklahoma City bombing. And that grievance, especially about gun rights, uh, was at the center of his belief. September 14th, 1994 was the day that Bill Clinton signed the assault weapons ban. And that was the triggering, intentionally use that word, factor for McVeigh and Nichols to begin final preparations of building the bomb. Gun yeah. rights were central to his beliefs. And McVeigh saw his attack on the federal building in Oklahoma City also as a response to the FBI attack on the Branch Davidian compound outside Waco, Texas. On April 19th, 1993, uh, the FBI ended a standoff uh, with this uh, religious extremist compound in uh, outside Waco. The, the Branch Davidians was the group. David Koresh was the leader. Um, the, the FBI fired tear gas in. Um, to this day, there is some dispute over what exactly happened at that point, uh, whether the people inside triggered the conflagration. In any case, there was a horrible fire. 76 people in, were, were killed. And McVeigh thought that was um, a perfect symbol of the evil of Bill Clinton's federal government. And that's why he did the bombing precisely two years later uh, in, in Oklahoma City. And Waco today has not been forgotten. Right. Donald Trump gave the first big rally of, of, his, re, uh, of his 2024 campaign at a rally outside Waco. You know, Waco has become a, a battle cry of the people who believe the federal government, including the FBI, are fundamentally evil. And Trump it was very clearly associating himself with that movement by holding the rally there, of all places. You said that um, Timothy McVeigh was obsessed with guns and gun rights. And with 1776, I learned from your book, there was a bunch of other things he was mad about. Immigrants, women, uh, what had happened to the economy of Buffalo? Let's talk about those things. You know, it, it's all of a package and it's all very familiar. 
its racial resentment against uh, affirmative action. McVeigh thought that he didn't get promotions in the army and he didn't get a job in Buffalo because the because uh, black people had gotten there ahead of him. Uh, he was appalled at the prospect of women in the in the military. He thought they weren't up to it. He was also uh, rejected by women in terms of his romantic life, and I think today would be described as an incel, involuntary celibate. It, so if you look at his um, ideological profile, it's so similar to Dylan Roof, who uh, attacked the, uh, the church in, in, in South Carolina, um, the, the terrorists who attacked the Walmart in, in El Paso, the grocery store in Buffalo. This is a worldview that is very familiar to us, sadly, and it's no coincidence that they are all ideologically aligned. And you say for Timothy McVeigh, there was one media source above all that got him interested in all of these issues. He was a ditto head. He was a Rush Limbaugh fan. And uh, one, one of the amazing aspects of this story was McVeigh had this incredible ability to take long, long drives uh, across the country. He would go from Buffalo to Michigan, where Terry Nichols lived, to Arizona, where his friend, uh, where his friend Michael Fortier lived, to Waco, where he 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 watched some of the siege, to his sister in Florida. He drove all over the country, and he always had three hours of Rush Limbaugh. And if you look at the way he expressed himself in letters during this period, uh, it, it was right out of the Limbaugh phrase book. And I also learned from your book that McVeigh wanted the Oklahoma City bombing to set off a broad rebellion that would overthrow the federal government. And you quote him saying, I believe there is an army out there ready to rise up, but I haven't found it, close quote. What's changed since 1995 to bring this army together? Well, th this to me was the central difference. We've talked about the similarities, but the difference between McVeigh of 1995 and the extremists of today. McVeigh had no mechanism, no ability to find other extremists. He'd go to gun shows. He tried to talk to people. He sold the Turner Diaries. It wasn't efficient. He didn't have the personality for it. But what's different is the Internet and social media. You know, what, what prompted me to write this book, John, which got me interested, I had covered the McVeigh and Nichols trials back in 1997, so it had always been rattling around my head. But in October of 2020, that was when the FBI arrested the plotters to kidnap Governor Whitmer of Michigan. And I saw that they were uh, affiliated with the Michigan militia, which was the same group that Terry Nichols, the co-defendant, uh, had been affiliated with in Michigan. And I said, I know these people, I know what they believe. And that was the first of the connective tissues that, that I discovered between McVeigh and uh, the current day. The internet is one huge change since then. There's one other one, which was September 11th, which of course made it seem like it was Islamic extremists that were the biggest threat to the United States, not domestic terrorists. What happened after 9-11, and, and look, given the magnitude of 9-11, it's, it's not surprising that it had a major impact on American life. But both by accident and very much by design, uh, people began to see terrorism as exclusively 
an Islamic phenomenon. And that was that, of course, was never true. But um, there was certainly an effort on the right to distract people from the persistence and danger of right wing terrorism by pointing at, by, by trying to argue that it was all uh, Islamic. And uh, the epilogue to, to Homegrown really spells out how many Republicans tried to tried to pretend that right wing terrorism doesn't exist. And at the same time, showing that it was very much still present in American life. Well, bringing it up to the the present, there have been a lot of complaints about Merrick Garland for the last couple of years that he's been too slow and and too timid in pursuing the January 6th crimes. But but now uh, we've seen that his prosecutors have convicted the leaders of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers on the charge of seditious conspiracy, a really serious charge. That is big. It is big. And, and, and I, I want to be very clear about what I think about Eric Garland. I, I think the substance of what he has done has been very impressive. You know, they've prosecuted almost a thousand people. Uh, including some, as you point out, on various serious charges. I'm a former federal prosecutor myself. I know that complex cases take a long time to put together. So I'm not prepared to criticize Merrick Garland for failing to prosecute the higher-ups in the January 6th conspiracy. Let's see what happens. That investigation is very much ongoing. The nature of my criticism is that Garland has not used the bully pulpit of attorney general to talk about the threats that right-wing extremism presents. You know, he has he is someone who believes that the Justice Department should basically only talk in a courtroom, and I don't think that's correct. I think it is important to point out the magnitude of the threat the country faces from the right. Um, he, he has alluded to it. Uh, Chris Ray, the, the director of the FBI, has alluded to it. But this is a real threat, and I think um, it, it's incumbent upon the attorney general to keep talking about it as well as keep prosecuting it in the courtrooms. And finally, one of the most impressive things about your bu book, uh, Homegrown, is the in huge amount of information you learned about Timothy McVeigh, much, much more than was ever revealed in the trial. How were you able to do this? Well, this was a, a a very odd thing that happened. Stephen Jones, who was McVeigh's lead lawyer, donated every scrap of paper, 635 boxes from his defense of McVeigh to the Briscoe Center at the University of Texas. Uh, he took a big tax deduction um, that all of that uh, material included all of his interviews with McVeigh and all of his legal strategy memos. Now, I don't think you have to be a lawyer to, to have some questions about whether that is an appropriate thing to do because of client confidences, because of the attorney-client privilege, which it is clear out, outlasts the death of the client. McVeigh was executed in 2001. And, and frankly, I do have some misgivings about whether uh, it was appropriate for Jones to do that. However, as a journalist, I was thrilled to take advantage of that decision. And so... Um, there was this enormous amount of material, which also included all the information that had been turned over by the federal government in discovery. So had all the FBI interviews. It is a rich, rich trove of information. And that was uh, a principal source uh, for me in Homegrown. 
The story of Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing of 1995 is not just a glimpse of the past, it's a warning about the future. Jeffrey Tubin's new book is Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism. Jeff, thanks for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks, John. How to Teach American History has probably never been more controversial than it is right now. Since the Black Lives Matter protests of summer 2020, at least four states have required black history to be part of the curriculum, and seven more have established new courses on Native American history or Asian American history. And meanwhile, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is campaigning for president, promising to stop woke history, stop teaching about slavery and its legacy of institutional racism. For comment, we turn to Adam Hochschild. He's an award-winning author. We've often talked about his books here. They include the classic King Leopold's Ghost about colonialism in Congo, and my favorite, Bury the Chains, about how a small group of people started the movement that ended slavery in the British Empire and eventually everywhere. His most recent book is American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. And he's a contributor to the New York Review, where he wrote recently about competing versions of American history. We reached him today at home in Berkeley. Adam Hochschild, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, remind us about Florida's Stop Woke Act and similar laws in other states. What is their declared objective? Well, all over the country right now, we have the right wing sort of testing out different parts of the cultural battlefield. I think one of the things that kicked this off was in the wake of George Floyd's murder, there were statues that tumbled down everywhere, statues of Confederate heroes, of Robert E. Lee, of Jefferson Davis, and so forth. And a lot of people in the South, especially, but not entirely in the South, are very attached to that history. And I think rising politicians like uh, Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida and elsewhere are seeing this part of the cultural battlefield as a place to keep on fighting the old civil war and in a way to fight a new civil war, where the claim they make is that uh, liberals and radicals and progressives of all kinds are trying to make us feel bad about ourselves as a country. And we should feel better about ourselves and proud about our history. So the latest round of the cultural battlefield is the history wars. Ron DeSantis has explained that uh, their goal in Florida is to forbid teaching that could make, as they put it, someone feel guilty or ashamed about past actions by other members of the same race, color, sex, or national origin. Who is this someone who might feel guilty or ashamed? Do they mean white men born in the USA? I think they do. And I think they are appealing very much to that part of the electorate. There's a deeper agenda behind this, which is what kind of America in the future they want to see. 
And I understand that you found what you call the dream educational agenda for the right. This is the curriculum that has no guilt and no shame about uh, what white people have done. Where did you find this agenda? Well, I was fascinated to find that for free, you could download uh, 3,268 pages of advice for teachers of American history at every level from kindergarten through high school from the website of Hillsdale College. And Hillsdale College, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, is a small, Christian-oriented, almost entirely white, right-wing college in Michigan, which has a very conservative curriculum focused on the great books, the classics of Western thought, that kind of thing. But they are very evangelical about preaching this part of the world outside of Hillsdale's quite small campus. The college is very well endowed. Among their their, uh, contributors has been the family of uh, Betsy DeVos, Trump's secretary of education, and her brother, Eric Prince, who's a Hillsdale graduate and the founder of the Blackwater Mercenary Group. And they and many other people have given Hillsdale huge amounts of money. It's got an endowment of almost a billion dollars, which is an enormous amount for a very small college. And they put out curriculum materials and other material for people wanting to teach American history in their conservative worldview. And I understand that Hillsdale has something to do with Ron DeSantis's project in Florida. Right. He has hired people from Hillsdale to help him revamp the Florida school curriculum. And so Hillsdale is sort of his intellectual consigliere in uh, trying to revamp Florida's educational system. Well, you've read the 3,000 pages of the Hillsdale American History curriculum. Just want to ask you about some of the the flashpoints uh, here. What do they say about slavery? To their credit, they acknowledge that slavery was a bad thing and that it could be very brutal and cruel to the people in it. Uh, But they seem to go out of their way to soften it in a couple of interesting ways. For instance, even though they they made clear that slavery was very cruel to the slaves, they said nothing about the systematic widespread rape that was associated with American slavery, as indeed in slavery, with slavery in almost any country where it's been practiced. So Thomas Jefferson's name is mentioned hundreds of times uh, during these thousands of pages, but Sally Hemings's never. They also soften it in other ways. Uh, this 1776 curriculum, which is what these thousands of pages of stuff is called, uh, urges teachers to, and I'm quoting, consider with students the significance of the Constitution not using the word slave and instead using the word person. Refusing to use the word slave avoided giving legal legitimacy to slavery. The use of the word person forced even slaveholders to recognize the humanity of the slave. Sean Wilentz wrote a book in part about this sentence in the Constitution and how it got there. We've talked about it on this show. It is true 
that there was a huge battle at the Constitutional Convention about whether to use the word person instead of the word slaves. And the slaveholders, of course, fought bitterly to prevent this from happening because they saw what the New Englanders were trying to do. But it certainly did not force slaveholders, as the Hillsdale curriculum says, to recognize the humanity of the slave. Absolutely. And of course, a lot of other things in the Constitution, like the three-fifths clause and the fugitive slave clause, in fact, does force not just the slave states, but the other states to recognize those human beings as slaves and not as people. And what does the um, 1776 curriculum say about Native Americans? It says, the contact between indigenous North American and European civilizations resulted in both benefits and afflictions for natives and colonists alike, and was troubled by many misunderstandings. Oh, man. <laughs> it was a hard time for both of them. It was. You could almost say there were many misunderstandings between Hitler and the Jews. There I mean, were, really. Yeah, that's true. And then more recently, uh, what do they say, for example, about FDR and the New Deal, which is sort of the model for progressives today about what government might be able to accomplish someday soon? Well, to their credit, they include some of FDR's speeches, but they want you to take them in the right way which is, from Hillsdale's point of view, to understand that the New Deal kind of was a further step in the process of creating a fourth branch of government called the administrative state, uh, you know, where we have the three branches that those great framers of the Constitution thought of. And then in the 20th century and beyond, in a sinister way, this fourth branch, the administrative state has snuck in. You know, they make analogies between people being regulated by the administrative state and the colonists rebelling against being regulated by the British king across the Atlantic Ocean. The Constitution, you emphasize, is a very important part of the 1776 Hillsdale curriculum. You say they're defenders of the Electoral College, which of course has been criticized by people like us as a profoundly anti-democratic institution, which of course indeed was the purpose of the founders to prevent direct election of the president by creating this complicated structure. Why do the authors of the 1776 curriculum think that the Electoral College was a good idea? Well, and I'm quoting from the curriculum. It says you should tell middle and high school students that the Electoral College system has, quote, forced presidential candidates to address the concerns, not merely of large population centers like cities, but of rural and more remote populations. Now, this doesn't mention, of course, nowhere in all these thousands of pages is it mentioned that it's possible for somebody to win the electoral vote and lose the popular vote, something we've seen happen a number of times now in recent decades. And incidentally, when we had the last such flap over an election result, which was, of course, the 2020 uh, election result, where... Uh, Donald Trump supporters were trying to introduce, you know, fake slates of electors supposedly elected in states where he lost by a narrow margin. 
the majority leader of the Michigan State Senate testified that one of the people who pressured him to submit to the House of Representatives a false alternate slate of pro-Trump electors was Robert E. Norton II, vice president of Hillsdale College. Wow. And in your critique of the 1776 Hillsdale College curriculum in the New York Review, you say the most important thing about it really is not what's in it, it's what's not in it. Please explain. Well, I think we all know that vast amounts of power in this country are not political. Uh, there was a study done by the Institute for Policy Studies a few years ago that showed that the three richest Americans, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and Warren Buffett, today I think Elon Musk would be in the mix even at the very top of it. The personal wealth held by those three guys was equal to that of the personal wealth held by the bottom half, that is more than 150 million people of the American population economically. Well, when you have a, a country where the distribution of wealth is so unjust, you know, wealth is a kind of power. It's something that gets passed from one generation to the next. It influences what your choices are in life. It, it influences how much of the world is open to you, what the possibilities are. This is a kind of power that simply doesn't get considered when you focus on the three branches of government and the Senate and the House of Representatives and the Supreme Court and so on. And they're vast power centers. We all know, for instance, the extent to which Amazon has become in the last 20 years a part of everybody's life. The power that one company has to change the face of communities by putting mom and pop businesses out of work. These are the kinds of power that just focusing on the genius of the founding fathers simply get ignored. But I think the wielding of economic power and the enormous influence it has over our lives is just a crucial part of the American story today. The right has their ideas about what young people should learn about American history. And of course, so does our side. And reshaping our understanding of our past has been the work most recently of the 1619 Project, launched originally by the New York Times Magazine in response to the Black Lives Matter movement in 2019 under the leadership of Nicole Hannah-Jones. Their basic argument is that slavery and its legacy have been a tremendous force continuing to shape our present as well as our past. This started out as a special issue of the magazine. It became a big best-selling book a podcast, a children's book. Now it's a six-part documentary series on Hulu that will be shown in schools, in some schools, for you know the next decade. You have watched the Hulu series. It's very different from a textbook because it features Nicole Hannah-Jones herself as the narrator and protagonist. Um, what did you think of the TV series on Hulu of the 1619 Project? What does it accomplish and maybe what does it leave out? There's some excellent material in it, and I would recommend that series to people. To me, the most forceful part of that six-part series was the fourth episode, has the title Capitalism. And there is an extraordinary juxtaposition in that segment. At one point, Hannah Jones is talking to a Berkeley historian named Caitlin Rosenthal, 
they're at an archive in Louisiana looking at the uh, handwritten ledger that is recording the week's plantings at a Mississippi slave plantation called Pleasant Hill. And you go down the column of each column of the ledger, there's a slave's name, just one name. Slaves didn't have last names. And then day by day for the week, Monday through Saturday, the number of pounds of cotton that that man or woman, that enslaved man or woman picked that day, you know, the daily tally, their labor being translated into measurable units that their owner can keep track of. Then the film cuts to a scene in an Amazon warehouse. And then we are talking to one of the organizers of the successful drive to unionize workers at the Amazon warehouse on Staten Island in New York. And this guy is also talking about picking things, picking items off the shelf, and how Amazon is monitoring the number of items per hour that you pick. And you realize here again, a giant corporation is monetizing the units of labor that can be extracted from an individual human being. And of course, you don't pick enough of these items in an hour, you lose your job. Now, I don't mean to say that Amazon workers are slaves. They're not. You know, they're paid. They go home the end of the day. They're, you know, free to watch TV commercials for products they can't afford. <laughs> but there is something eerie about the continuity there and the inhumanity with which these people are treated. And I really do think that the efforts by uh, people at these ununionized workplaces who've started to organize in the last couple of years, Amazon, Starbucks, Trader Joe's, and many more, are really in the forefront of the battles for social justice in this country today. Adam Hochschild, his article, History Bright and Dark, appears in the New York Review. Adam, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.